Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now onto the show. In the world today, we are bombarded constantly with information and data from what seems like an endless stream of media outlets. The problem with this information overload is that the noise can become paralyzing as we struggle to distinguish between what's good, better, and best. The same is true with financial leaders, as they are often buried in compliance and transactional activities, which are important, but also create an insatiable appetite for time and resources. This means that CFOs especially must be highly disciplined in simplifying the accounting and finance function to free up time for their teams to focus on value-creating activities like forecasting, planning, and analysis instead of the day-to-day transactional and financial reporting sides of the business. Steven Schertz, Chief Financial Officer of Hennigan Construction in New York City, is a classic example of a strategic financial leader who understands how to drive value within organizations and lead teams for high performance. So Steve, what was your upbringing like and how has it shaped your life over the years? So I grew up in a uh, middle-class household with a blue-collar dad and a white-collar mom. My mother was a full-charge bookkeeper back in the 70s and the 80s until she retired. Today, we would call her a a controller, and she worked in construction, residential construction, so I got my first taste of what books and records were like from her. My dad, uh, over uh, the course of his lifetime, had a series of jobs until... I guess the early 60s, he bought a franchise for home delivery of newspapers on Long Island. And uh, it was a one-man job, six days a week. Then on Sunday, he had three or four men working for him to deliver uh, the New York Times, the Daily News, and a host of papers that were published back then that are no longer around. So the ethics that I learned from, from the two of them, in addition to European grandparents, was... Uh, hard work, be honest, treat people properly, try to do things uh, unconditionally for neighbors and family and friends. And it shaped me uh, very much so where today my ethics and my integrity are extremely important. And is that what got you into this area of finance and just this interest in that area? It was from your mom or was it just, it ended up being that way? So, it's it's a it's somewhat of a funny story, sad and then funny. So uh, I started off as a political science major, figuring I would go to law school, and I in fact wanted to practice uh, criminal law. Uh, Ethley Bailey was someone that I 
admired. So I started off and about a year and a half into college by the first term of my second year, prospects for jobs in the New York City legal market were pretty slim as projected. And so went home dejected after this uh, meeting in the auditorium of the university. My mother basically said, you're going to transfer to Bernard Baruch College and you're going to be an accountant and you'll always have a job. (laughs) And (laughs) ultimately, until 2010, she was absolutely right. Um, I always had a job. And while I started off in public accounting, got my CPA certificate and then left public accounting after six years to go into various industries, I left on my terms from each job, as I said, until 2010, when the world was upside down. Well, and and that's interesting. I mean, so when you were going through this accounting program, did you like it? Were you good at it? Was it something that you were passionate about? Or did you learn to love it over time? Right. So I started off as a senior in high school, taking bookkeeping one and bookkeeping two, which really was an introduction to accounting. In fact, uh, first accounting course in college mirrored the, the year that I took in high school. Um, my grades were like 98 and 97 in, in, the, in the course. So I had a propensity for it. I was more math oriented than uh, reading and writing oriented. And I found uh, a niche, even though at first I didn't start off in accounting, but, but came back to it. My, uh, I also, uh, I guess in, in some ways, uh, hereditarily, I had two uncles that were controllers. One was a CPA, one wasn't. My brother, preceded me in Baruch and, and also started off in accounting and in private industry. So in, in looking back on your career, I mean, you kind of touched on this, but you've worked in real estate, logistics, manufacturing, and, and now you're the CFO of a construction company in New York. Um, do you remember any points in your life where you intentionally pivoted and made like these big, bold moves or has your path been relatively sequential and linear? No, I actually uh, pivoted on a number of occasions. So after six years of, ac- of public accounting, when I decided that partnership was really something that I wasn't interested in, I actually got a phone call from a friend who said that a friend of his was looking for a controller, and, and that started 11 years in real estate development and management. When that ended, I ha- always had a hankering for manufacturing just because cost accounting was so difficult for me in, in college. And, and I found that I, I needed to do this for me. And so I spent, oh, I think about 10 or 11 years with three different companies doing job cost and process accounting, uh, process uh, cost accounting for uh, three different manufacturers. I enjoyed that immensely. I enjoyed walking on the floor of the, of, of the plant, watching throughput, watching product get manufactured. You know, unlike real estate management, this was real tangible work that people were doing to produce goods for sale to uh, to the, the public. The final leg of that part of my career was working for a publicly traded flooring company. So I got an SEC background, have, being responsible for uh, the K's and the Q's and, and other filings with the SEC. So, so that was great. Uh, once I got that out of my system, at that point, it was things that came along as I was looking for different industries. One thing that I did do successfully was never going back to the same industry, having worked for a company within that industry. So when I was in job cost accounting, 
uh, in a job, a uh, metal shop, actually. Uh, I never went back to job costs. It was all process after that. One was, was a flooring company. One was a bakery, actually, in New York City. And then after that, it was different industries. So I went into logistics. I went into um, service. Uh, there, there was a point in my career where I spent a year working for a German grain commodity company. So, it, but and, and that was purposeful. It was purposeful not to go back to the same industry a second time. So it's worked out pretty well for you. I mean, some people may wonder, does it hurt them bouncing around from industry to industry? Or is it better to you know, just specialize on one specific industry and become a, a master or masteress in that industry? What would your, what's your perspective on that? Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you wanna take your game to the next level or you wanna avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. So early in my career, if one didn't spend three, four or five years at one organization, headhunters wouldn't talk to that person. The feeling was you're bouncing around too much. Uh, As time went on, having spent uh, a number of years, so I spent 11 years working for a real estate developer and and, uh, real estate management company. That was, you know, early 80s to the early 90s. Um, And after that, it didn't matter. It seems that the the appetite of the uh, of the hiring folks at companies were had, had changed. Um, I, I've seen resumes where people worked eighteen to twenty four months, then moved another eighteen to twenty four months. Early in my career, that would have been unacceptable. So my thought is that I, I think spending a, a significant amount of time, which is three to five years, in an organization. Would be paramount. I believe that it, it shows uh, the next hiring person that you're committed to the company. And and look, uh, you don't have many uh, dinosaurs that have worked, uh, you know, twenty, thirty, forty years for one organization, particularly in the fin- I think in the financial arena, uh, whether it's accounting or or management or marketing. I think people want to. Uh, learn and want to learn new industries. Uh, the other thing that I did in my career was I went smaller and then larger as as time went went on. Uh, so you know, working for a, a publicly traded company, they were micro cap. They were doing two hundred fifty to three hundred million dollars of sales. Um, so that you know that was probably at the the most uh, in terms of um, my career until I got back into construction. Now, let me ask you this. Let's go back to the public accounting world because I served sure. some time in public accounting. I was at Ernst & Young. And the big question among people in public accounting was, when should we leave if we're going to leave? You know, some people yeah. are on partner tracks and they, they want to stay, you know, the whole time. They're, they bleed the company's uh, blood and, and colors and they're, they're lifetimers. Um, but there's other people that come into public accounting knowing that it's, you know, a short-term gig. And you spent six years there. I spent a number of years at Ernst & Young. And I remember when I was leaving, 
you know, my managers and the partners, they're all saying, Hey, you know, this is a big mistake. You should stay along, you know, for at least a decade or whatever it is. But then there's other people who have left after a few years and they've gone off to start other businesses or take on different roles and they're just as successful. So any thoughts on how long somebody should stay in public accounting if anybody is listening to this episode and they're in public accounting right now themselves? Sure. So the, the, the one thing about public accounting that I always found to be the positive was the training, H- how to manage a job, right? How to manage uh, work papers, how to manage one's time during uh, the year. And the year is, is segmented into you know, the slow times in the summer, generally the very, very busy time towards the end of the year and then you know, for the first two, three months, and, and also how to manage multiple projects simultaneously. Because one never is just working on one job unless you're working in the, you know, today the big four for me was the big eight where you're on uh, perhaps a public uh, company uh, audit and you're managing that. So the, the short answer is the number of years until that decision on moving up the CPA company ladder. And generally, in my years, it was when one would become a manager. Because from manager, you went on to partner or you never made manager. And it seems to me that it's better for the individual to make the decision to leave versus when you get to that point, whether it's six years or seven years or eight years or 10 years, and the company says, you're not really partner material. So you can stay where you are or you can go and look for a job outside uh, public accounting or with a, with a different accounting firm. But so for me, six years was that time where I felt satisfied in my education, satisfied that I had given the companies that I worked for uh, a, a good work product. And, and, uh, and it was time for me to move into the business arena because I always figured out that I wanted to be a businessman, not, not a uh, consultant. At the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that, that's great advice. So switching gears here a little bit, uh, you're an avid golfer, you're a certified scuba diver. Um, what else are you passionate about and how can busy leaders balance pursuing personal passions against professional demands? So the, the third uh, leg of the stool is music. I uh, grew up uh, playing musical instruments and in my adult life and, and, and teenage life, going to concerts was a very, very big thing in New York, particularly back in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, and thereafter. Um, but my, my wife and I are very aligned in taking a piece of our annual budget and budgeting it for shows. And shows have only gotten more and more and more expensive uh, right. to the point where sometimes I question the value proposition of, of plopping down, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars for two tickets to see uh, a concert. But right. uh, it is it is something that uh, we we both feel is important in our lives and, and it, it helps balance things. So music is key. Vacation. We are uh, warm weather folks. I used to ski and I blew out my left knee so I couldn't ski anymore. And I enjoyed skiing when, when I did it, but I'm more of a beach bum. And I like to, you know, go away for five, six, seven, eight, ten days and bring a couple of books and um, hang out with my family. When my children were younger and uh, we would go to, into the Caribbean, for example, I'd spend the week uh, with, with my kids, just the three of us. And my wife would be sitting and watching. <laughs> so vacations were, is important. And then uh, early in my career... Uh, family was was very important. I was always uh, at the the glee clubs or the chorus or the dance or 
whatever event was happening for my kids in, in uh, the school system. Yeah. So, I mean, how, I mean, how does somebody do that? Because, you know, there's this ideology that exists out there where it's, you know, when you're young, that's when you grind, that's when you put in all the hours, you're working really hard. You may have to sacrifice, you know, social time or maybe uh, your physical health, you know, maybe you're not working out or running as much because you're getting into the office early. So how do you balance this and like, family life and social life and your health and, and, and all these things while trying to advance in your career and climb up that so-called ladder? Yeah. So early, early on in, in a career, I think that there's more stress in taking vacation. And I'm a believer that you need to take vacation. One, one needs to take vacation. Um, it, it, for a lot of reasons. One is you recharge your, your batteries, and you, when you get back, uh, at least for me, I always felt energized, re-energized. Um, as, so in, early in the career, you, you just do it. You know, people say, I don't have the time for things. Well, that's not really a, a fair and factual statement. You make time. One makes time to do things. Um, I, I believe that almost all companies, and, and obviously there are some dinosaur owners uh, or managers that you know whose whose lives perhaps are not as balanced as others, but um, I believe that companies want their their folks to take vacation and, and and you know from from the you know the management point of view, we want to see what's going on when they're not there also right. But that, that's a a different question. I think as one moves up the ladder and you're at a, a leadership role, while you're on vacation, you're still connected. So when I would go into the Caribbean, I would rent a phone uh, because, uh, you know, in the early days before internet was, was widely available. So I could call in on a daily basis and just check in uh, with internet and uh, one, one can answer emails uh, during the day so that, again, if anything pops, one, one's available and, and finds out about it. And I, and I think it, it's just a philosophy of life that one, one uh, decides to embrace or not embrace. I think it's a mistake for young folks to uh, feel that they can't take vacation. And and look at some of the technology companies uh, in the United States. Google, for example, uh, I believe their policy is when you go on vacation, don't don't log into your email for that period of time. I, I believe that's their that's their philosophy, and I wouldn't be surprised if other technology companies have a similar philosophy. Yeah, and I think that's so important. And like you said, it's a decision because I, I've been guilty of it working really, really hard. And, you know, when my kids are really young, I was traveling a lot and, you know, I, I didn't prioritize certain things. But when we make the conscious decision, you know, to make time for these other things, we can have more like work-life harmony. That, that's right. And, and today work-life um, has become a buzzword, you know, we, over the years as buzzwords at my current, uh, uh, situation, my current employment, um, about a year and a half ago, we as leaders decided that we wanted folks to have a more balanced work life balance. And so we actually increased the amount of vacation days for the entire organization by, by five business days. So if you were two weeks, you went to three, and three weeks, you went to four, um, with with the understanding that you got to take those days. You can't carry it over anymore. There was people that would carry it over. Uh, you got you got to take those days because you want you to have a, a better uh, balance in, in your life. Yeah, and I, I think that's so critical, and I think that's a, a great example for other companies to to really 
you know, encourage or enforce employees to, to take time off and, and take time to recharge. Another question that I have here is, is following up from our conversation that we had at the conference that we met at, and we were talking about strategic financial leadership briefly. You know, this is a topic that I think we're both passionate about, hence the reason why you're here on the podcast today with me. But this idea of strategic financial leadership and the future role of finance is, is changing, it's transforming, and no longer is it um, backwards looking and all about transactions and compliance. And it's more about, you know, forecasting and analysis and being strategic. So what does the term strategic financial leadership mean to you? And, and how do you see that being put into practice today? So from my experience, most business owners, particularly of closely held companies, don't necessarily have the acumen to see what's going on with the cash and profit and loss and assets and liabilities of their companies. And they rely on their controllers, their CFOs to provide the data. I think the leadership part is where the, the CFO or the controller is proactive and is making decisions on what to provide at a minimum. So for example, a minimum would be monthly financial statement. In the construction business, monthly financials and a work in process on a monthly basis because too many there's too many uh, variables and unknowns, particularly in construction building, that actually can get addressed and, and identified by doing a monthly closing. The, the second thing that financial leaders do is provide an understanding of where our cash is. Are we burning through cash? Are we not? And particularly today with industries uh, suffering because the economy has, has slowed, watching one's cash position on a weekly basis is, is something that a financial leader would decide to do and report that in and have meetings. And actually, the other part of financial leadership is to manage uh, up. So a president of company uh, at times who's more operational or sales oriented may, may not see the financial side as important. Well, then that controller or CFO is their job to pull that president perhaps by the hair and say, sit down with me. I need some of your time and I need to show you what's going on. I think those, those are the things that make a, a CFO or controller or a financial leader stand out from others that all of uh, the subcontractors that my company does business with. Uh, and what I find generally, particularly in the New York and New Jersey market, is that there isn't, that mo most subcontractors don't have leaders. And uh, if the, um, the owners of the company are the typical, I know where every penny is on every job, that's okay. But uh, unfortunately, when times uh, get a little more difficult, not having uh, that financial leader as a partner to the owner or the president of the company uh, can, can cause problems, can, can really um, create some uncertainty. And yeah. none of us want uncertainty. Exactly. And I, I think there's a real financial literacy gap, you know, not just personally with, with uh, Americans and across the world, but also professionally. And, and I think it's in the construction industry, in your industry, I also think it's in other industries as well. And like you said, you know, it's, you know, some business owners, they have that financial acumen and they may have a, you know, a gut sense of where the cash is or how cash is flowing or what profits look like. But a lot of companies um, are just flying blindly. 
And, and look, when, when I sat in on your session at the CFMA conference and you had the metrics of, you, you know, 99 out of 100 companies are making, you know, 0.1% on their bottom line, it opened up eyes. I mean, I, I know how the interiors business is because that's the business that I'm in and margins, unfortunately, are very tough. And, and uh, you know, it's sort of like, would you rather make uh, gross $10 million and put Five million to the bottom line, or would you make two hundred fifty million and put five million to the bottom line? Exactly. No, that, and that's exactly right. So, what are some common mistakes that CFOs make, or what are some mistakes that you've made, and what have you learned from them? The top mistake uh, that I've made is being able or unable to manage the owner or president of of a company. And what happens for me is when I find that. I can't bridge that gap for some reason and not, not do necessarily to it, that anyone's doing anything wrong, but it, it occurs to me that I'm just not helping at that point. And I tend to move on at that point. It usually takes a number of years before I get there. And, and in the successful side is, is obviously man, being able to manage and being able to form that relationship with, with the individual. Um, sometimes it takes quite a while. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. The second most important thing I find is trust, that one has to build trust with uh, people around them. And it, it doesn't matter whether it's the person doing accounts payable or accounts receivable or payroll. They look to their leaders in, in a trusting way. And, and uh, so it's, it's important. Obviously, moving up to trust is, is extremely important. And, and never, ever tell a fib or a lie with the understanding that we we in the, the accounting and the financial end merely are reporters. We report data. We don't own the data. We don't create the data. And so one never wants to manipulate that data because they, you know, one feels that uh, it's, it's the right thing to do. You want better results. And public companies uh, play with their reserves to have a better quarter or a worse quarter. And we hear it when we hear the financial news. And I never really understood you know, the game, that game that that's played. I've, I've met people who have modified the financials of companies to make uh, things appear better and, and eventually it catches up. And, um, and so the, the moral of the story is the CFO, the controller, the financial leader is not responsible for the good, the bad or the ugly, they, but they have to be honest about it and timely. Yeah. And I think, you know, trying to manage expectations and manage earnings is definitely a dangerous trap. And I also think, you know, manipulating the story of the financials to try to meet some type of narrative can be really damaging for organizations. And unfortunately, that happens far too often. And, and when it does happen, it's devastating. Um, the company I worked for had a guy that was responsible for the financials and he was modifying uh, the work and process uh, schedule. And after uh, about two years or so of, of manipulating, one day he was gone, just gone. Yeah. Yep. And um, I, I was actually consulting at the time and came in uh, and, and the first thing I did was bring in the bank and the surety uh, to show them that, look, here's what happened. Uh, I can't, I don't know yet why, but I can tell you I can fix it and, um, and you know, put the company back uh, into uh, a positive way and a positive uh, earnings and uh, rebuild the equity, et cetera, and which, which did happen. You know, it's, it's one of the 
success success stories of my life. Uh, and and so what what did that do? Well, that built a relationship with the company's partners, its banker, you know, its insurance uh, provider uh, that follows the individual around when that individual uh, leaves perhaps and moves on. Uh, I have, you know, one, one cool story in my life was working for company A doing business with the bank and moved to company B and uh, the, the bank that, that I was doing business with merged with another that was then the banker for company B and those guys who were the bankers for the company knew of me. And the company was having some difficulties, but because I was there in the CFO role, they decided that they would trust in me to provide them with the the data and the information that they needed to make as the bank. It truly was one of the um, one of those moments in one's life where you feel proud of of the work product that that you had done during a career. Well, and I I think that's a you know a strong testament to you know, the ethics that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that were instilled in you from childhood, and you know I, I think it's so important to stay true to those ethics because it is easy to you know manipulate the numbers or it's easy to change the story a little bit. Um, but what I found too is like when I was a CFO meeting with bankers, you know they just want transparency and and honesty and. I remember um, there's times where we had tough conversations with the banks and um, they appreciated the candor and the honesty. And, you know, really what they were looking for is, hey, just call a spade a spade. Let's talk about the numbers as they are. And they wanted to hear the story moving forward, the strategy of the company moving forward. And it built trust when... I was able to go in there and say, hey, look, this is where we are. This isn't where we necessarily want to be, of course, but here's a strategy to move forward. And they really appreciated that rather than you know, trying to play games and, and when to address the financials. Yeah. In my consulting days, I figured out that uh, bankers have a very large loose leaf binder filled with paper. And in that loose leaf binder is the action to information that they get from a from a customer or client so you know if um one's hitting the uh limit of their line of credit they turn to page 126 and they have the the answer to how they're supposed to move forward with that client who's hitting the limit of right their line of credit (laughs) (laughs) yeah so true so let me ask you this what can ceos do to better collaborate with CFOs. So you, I mean, yeah, you work closely with the CEO. And if you were to give CEOs advice coming from a CFO, like what can they do to better collaborate and, and work better? So the, the financial leader, CFO, all he wants is to walk a half a step behind and to the right or left of a CEO. He wants to partner with that person. He wants that, that CEO to keep him informed of decisions that need to be made, part of the narrative of where, how decisions get made. And, and, I get, and I get the feeling, or I've gotten the feeling during my career, that, that CEOs don't necessarily uh, understand that CFOs understand operations. You know, we've all done operational audits, or many of us have done operational audits, but we understand uh, the, the process. We understand how a construction job gets built. Not that I could manage a construction job. Right. But from afar, I understand that, you know, you've got 
electricians and plumbers and HVAC guys, and, and they all have a role and they have a timeline and they have to follow that in order for the job to be efficient. Um, in a manufacturing plant, it's, you know, raw material plus labor, you know, plus overhead equals a product. Uh, and so, and we understand by, by being out in the field or walking on the shop floor, how operations work. I think CEOs generally fall down when they don't realize that their CFOs can be part of the narrative and discussion and may have something to contribute. Maybe not. And, and the CFO needs to be quiet until like called upon, right? Where there's something that they can contribute because there are smarter people in the room when it comes to operations. In terms of the financial side, I think CEOs need to make time to spend time with their financial folks, whether it's the CFO or the controller, in order to validate what that department does and how it helps. And, and unfortunately, depending upon what the CEO's uh, uh, background is and, and, you know, again, whether rainmaker or operational person, uh, you know, marketing, uh, they, they, they don't make that connection. And, and I think it's a failure, failure on all. And, and obviously, the, the CFO should try to uh, insert himself in a way that is not intrusive, but, but helpful. Well, and so let me ask you this. I mean, what if uh, a CEO, he or she says, look, I'm just, I'm not a numbers person. I just, numbers aren't my thing. I, I don't know accounting and finance. You just tell me what the numbers are. I, is there some type of responsibility for the CEO to educate themselves from like a financial perspective? They, I mean, they don't need to do debits and credits, right? But what level of responsibility if any, should CEOs take on for you know boosting their financial literacy? So the the buck stops with the CEO of a company, and they have a responsibility to themselves and the organization. And, and you know, just as a sidebar, the organization are the workers that work there, and and we leaders understand that if if we mismanage the organization, all those people potentially could be out of work, and their families. You know, you start doing the math and, and it starts to multiply into hundreds of people that are affected by the the organization. So at the minimum, spend time with the CFO to review the data and let the CFO, if he does the, the right job, come up with the, uh, a lay person's methodology. So on a monthly basis, when I do my financials, I put together 12 or 14 very simple points for the CEO to see and understand with comparative. So accounts receivable is, you know, $10 this month. Last month, it was $8. Accounts payable is $8 this month. Last month, it was $6. Our cash was, is, uh, you know, uh, $22. And last month, it was $15. It starts to build trust, I think, in the, in the CFO that the CEO is seeing and understanding and hopefully being somewhat inquisitive about well, why things have changed. And one of the, one of the things I've always enjoyed was uh, having to come back to the drawing board and get more information because that meant that the person that I was sitting across was absorbing what was being said and, and had thoughts of, of their own. Yeah, no, and, and I like that. And I, I think that mentorship, that coaching, just that collaboration between the CEO and the CFO are so critical. So we're, we're living in these unique times, obviously. I mean, there's this global pandemic, a global financial impact here. So where do you see the opportunities for growth, innovation, and value creation in the future? Or do hmm. you? 
Well, um, so uh, I'll just stay in construction for now. I think that at the earliest Q3 of 2021 here in the Northeast, uh, we'll, we'll I hopefully start to see a loosening of, um, of jobs. The decision that the purchases of construction services have to make is whether or not they're going to maintain a presence, a real estate presence, increase it, decrease it, uh, and they haven't made that decision yet. So the major banks that, uh, and financial service companies that employ and, and are a big uh, purchaser of construction services, they've not decided yet. And, and so jobs that we knew were coming uh, have been deferred, I'm sure, because the RFPs have slowed down. I think that if the Congress is going to do another funding of, you know, the universe um, in, in the trillions of dollars, perhaps they can suggest to the beneficiaries of those trillions of dollars that they figure out a way to start bringing workers back to work rather than working remotely. And, and it's really simple if you think about it. When you go to work every day, you take a car, public transportation, a bicycle, you walk. Before you get to work, you probably go and get a cup of coffee somewhere. That creates commerce. Now you're working and lunchtime, if you don't bring a sandwich or even if you do, you go out and you get a, a, some sort of form of lunch and you bring that back to your desk or you eat in a restaurant and that creates more commerce. And I think that's what is missing right now to start the process of rejuvenating the economy. is There's just a lack of commerce. Now, some, some very smart economists suggested that, well, we subsidize the farmers to grow or not grow commodities. Why can't we subsidize the hospitality and restaurant business because of, of uh, an illness that's floating around right now until vaccines are available and provided to people? But I believe it does start with people coming back to work and I will tell you emotionally and psychologically, I needed to come back to work uh, rather than working from home. And I've done both uh, as a consultant and, and, and we worked remotely for a period of time. But I needed to come back to be back in business, to be back in the office, to collaborate, even though most of it is via video, but to, uh, to collaborate with my coworkers and to physically be here. Yeah, I think that makes a big difference. And and you're right, you know, just jumpstarting commerce again and getting people moving around, I think is going to be key to getting the economy up and going. I, I, I've spoken, I, I was actually visiting my daughter uh, who lives out on the uh, Eastern Long Island. And we stopped at a place to have a cocktail outside and with some young people that were going to a party that night. And, you know, just in, in talking, they said, we want to go back. <laughs> you know, we're, we're done. And, and so I believe there, there's, I don't know if it's a minority or majority of people, but people want to go back. And yeah. it may not be five days a week, maybe it's three days a week. They, I, and I believe they need them. I believe, you know, uh, unfortunately, particularly in the United States versus Europe, we're much more in tune to, I work. Europe, a little more socialist in terms of, I also get a month off in the summertime because the, the continent shuts down. Right. Um, we're here, you know, in, in the States. I think uh, from a, a business point of view, it just could never happen, just the way we're, we're wired, I think. Uh, but I think people definitely want to get back. They, wanna, they want a, a little more structure in their lives. Because I, I know for me, uh, when we were working, we were working like AB days. And if it was a B day and it was uh, April, May, 
and I finished up what I was doing at three o'clock, you know, I may go out for a, a ride or go play golf uh, because I was done. Where if you're at work, that last hour or two, you you may be a little more productive. Yep. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. And and yeah, I think there's a giant craving just for that connection, and you know that structure, like you were talking about, that exists back in um, in real office places. So yeah. if you could if you could travel back in time, Steve, what advice would you give your 20 year old self? Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> that's a very interesting question. Well, well, we always said, you know, when we were you know first married or or later in life, boy, I wish I had this head back when I was 18. <laughs> I know what to do. I think the first thing I would say is be true to yourself. Try to do things uh, because they're needed, not because they you just want to do it. Very importantly, build a network of business friends and business acquaintances because one day one may need that network uh, because one is out of a job. Try to make people understand who you are and uh, try to get a little more personal, not not with, with everybody, but perhaps a small group of influencers. These are things that I didn't understand back then. In fact, it took me uh, a long time to, to understand that. And, and I think, uh, you know, as a, I think as a prerequisite, generally we like to say things like, you know, work hard. And no, I, I think working efficiently and trying to show people who you report to that you're, that you provide value, uh, that the value proposition uh, is is there and and what they you know, they compensate you to do is worth it because that's how uh, one uh, I think uh, not only grows professionally uh, but also economically. Yeah, no, that and that's great advice. And and I often think the same thing. I'm like, if I could go back with the knowledge that I have right now to my 20s, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> You'd right. really do some amazing things. And and, and not that you would have moved, uh, you know, this, in the straight line any differently, right? Right. But uh, perhaps a couple of things would have been different. You may have taken this, you may have made the same moves professionally in terms of who you were working for and things like that. But I, I think perhaps getting there uh, may have happened, getting there meaning uh, to a more, uh, to a higher place professionally may have happened a little sooner. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So how do you, how do you see the role of the CFO changing as we move forward into the future? I think once the economy and the, pandemic uh, is somewhat behind us. I believe that CFOs are going to be looked at a little more strategically because we are right now the strategic person within the organization. If if the sales folks can't bring in sales because they're non-existent and if jobs are winding down so the operational folks are kind of sitting behind the desk. The strategic player is is the CFO who's essentially minding the store. Yep. And what I, what I hope for, and, and I believe could happen, is that the uh, folks that I report into, for example, uh, ha- have absolutely seen the value proposition from me and that they have said to me, we trust you, we know you're watching the store, and, and we sleep well at night because of that. And, and I hope that that mindset moves moves forward um but you know into next year late next year when things hopefully will will start to turn around and the economy starts to flow again because you know people like me get bored yep and we need other types of things to do and we want to be involved maybe that's a flaw in my character but 
I've always wanted to be involved. And, and sometimes, you know, involved was not a good thing. And if you're smart enough, you sit down, you take a deep breath and you say, okay, you know, what, what's, what's the move? What do I want? What do I need to do here? What do I want to do here? Is it good for the organization? I think the CFO is going to be looked at in that light to be more strategic and more involved. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, you know, metaphorically, as far as the CFO mining the store, I think that's so true because the CFO, you know, they see operations, they see sales, they, they see all these functions of the business and they see the financial side of the company. And I, I totally agree that they're best positioned to take on more of a strategic role and be almost the strategic leader in the organization moving forward. I think it's going to be a hard swallow for certain presidents, CEOs who, ha- who are more operational because they, they don't necessarily connect those dots. And, and perhaps, perhaps that's okay. Uh, perhaps the, the CFO can, ha- has proven that, no, no, it, it's okay. I can be part of this conversation. Yep, I agree. So there, there's some listeners in the audience and maybe they're not at the CFO position right now. Maybe they're aspiring to be, become a CFO. So what advice would you give to them for growing into this position? And what do you think they should be focused on right now in their lives if they want to yeah. become a CFO? So sometimes we all fall into the trap of, yeah, I can do that job. I, I have enough experience. And what I would suggest is, Chances are that the answer to that question or statement is you don't, not yet. Um, so, so for someone who's aspiring uh, to, uh, you know, go from staff accountant to controller to CFO and and or beyond. I mean, I don't see why CFOs can't become CEOs generally. But I think the number one, learn from the people around you. Uh, the people around you have a wealth of knowledge. It doesn't matter if it's the staff folks or the uh, people above you. Secondly, when I came into my current employer, I actually took a desk in the accounting department rather than office for a year. And I wanted to, A, become part of the team. I wanted to see what everybody was doing. I wanted to be there for them had they had any questions. And I wanted to learn what they were doing just by observing. I don't micromanage as, as a general way of doing business. So I think being in the trenches is very important. Um, and I think sometimes when, you know, you move from a staff accountant to controller, for example, there's this, oh, I'm the controller now. No, you're still part of that team. And if you don't manage that team, you're going to fail. So I've, I've gotten calls from headhunters uh, in my role as the former president of the New York chapter of CFMA who are looking for CFOs. And after speaking with them about the position, it, it occurs to me that they can't afford a CFO. They really need a controller who needs to move into that next step before CFO. And so there's that interim step from controller to heavy-duty controller to CFO. Because the CFO job is really not about debits and credits and monthly financial statement closing. Uh, in, in an organization of a sufficient size, they may have somebody that's doing that, and then they're responsible for, you know, blessing the numbers, the financials, et cetera. And so the, the next statement is, don't think that half a step upward is a bad move or the wrong move. It very well may be the right move to learn more and more and more about the CFO position. And then finally, try to find an organization where there is a CFO that can mentor and can share and uh, hopefully will. Um, I, I was mentoring a, a younger person 
at my company for a couple of years. Unfortunately, uh, that person left the organization, but I was actually grooming that person to ultimately become the next CFO. And, and there are lots of people like me out, out in the business world that, that understand that there's an altruism about what we do and, and for the good of the organization. Uh, I'm not a shareholder, but I'm a leader. And so I have a responsibility to, in that role to the organization, however it manifests. So um, I think all those kind of steps would help try not to get ahead of oneself. If you don't know the answer, don't, don't give an answer. You know, say, I'll, I'll get back to you or, you know, let me, let me review that. Let me research it. Owners of businesses, they just don't want bad information. And they don't mind if you say things like, I'll get back to you. But you got to get back to them in a timely fashion. And then finally, don't go to a superior of a staff accountant going to a controller, controller going to the CFO. Don't go with the problem without thoughtfulness about the solution. It may not be the, the solution that's adequate or appropriate at the moment, but at least the person who you're talking to will understand that you really took some time to think about it. And maybe you're not experienced enough and maybe, you know, just breadth of knowledge, but they, they understand that you, you tried your best to come with an issue and the solution to the issue rather than just dumping it on them. Yep. And, and I think that's such excellent advice in there. I mean, there's so many nuggets in there for people that are aspiring to this position. And I especially like your point about, you know, finding a company where you could be mentored and making sure that we're, we're patient in our progress and, and not worry about half steps or steps that you may not feel are necessarily pertinent because they, they'll definitely pay off in the long run. So great advice, Steve. Steven, um, I really appreciate this conversation with you today. It's always great talking with CFOs and hearing their perspective on just life and strategic financial leadership and where the role of the CFO is going. So I appreciate your time today. You're welcome. I've enjoyed uh, sharing with you. Well, great. And um, for all you uh, listeners out there, I look forward to you joining us on the next episode of Strategic Financial Leadership. And in the meantime, take care. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.